All right, so here's the question for today. How should Christians relate to the culture at large? How should Christians relate to, engage with the world? There's two ways to ask the same question. How should Christians relate to the culture? How do you relate to the culture? This is a question that we're asking a lot these days as Christians because uh, even though you could dispute how Christian of a nation America has been, there's no question that it's less Christian than it used to be. And that a lot of times we felt like we were the home team maybe a number of years ago being Christians in a Judeo-Christian culture and now it feels like we're the visiting team and it raises the question, how should Christians relate to the culture? It's a pressing question. A lot of articles are written and podcasts spoken and thoughtful people contributing a lot to it. But it isn't a new question. It's actually a question that's been around for a long time. The, The people of God have always been asking the question, how do we relate to God and how do we relate to the world around us? In fact, in Jesus' day, there were three different groups of people. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll bump into these religious groups, and, and you may wonder, what were they about, and how, what, what were they? You'll, hear about, you'll read about the Sadducees, you'll read about the Pharisees, you'll read about the Essenes, you'll read about these different groups, and one of the main things that made each of those groups distinct was how they answered the question, how should the people of God relate to the culture? That actually was one of the main things that separated them, right? So you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees, their basic approach was, we'll accommodate to culture. You know what? In Israel in those days, with, you know, when Jesus was doing his ministry, Israel was under Roman occupation. And the Sadducees said, you know what? Let's just accommodate to the Romans. We'll get power that way. We'll have influence that way. We'll just accommodate to them, right? And so, in fact, the Sadducees did have a lot of power. They were kind of the ruling class in Israel. A lot of the wealthiest people were Sadducees. A lot of the people that were part of the council that ultimately put Jesus to death were Sadducees. They had power because they accommodated to Roman culture. Then you had the Pharisees. And the word Pharisee, do you know what it means? It means separate ones, the separate ones. The the Pharisees were the ones that said, you know what, we're going to separate from the culture and we're going to create our own subculture. Why? Because the culture in the world is dirty and it's toxic and it's dark and it's decaying and we don't want it to get on us. We don't want it to influence us. We want to honor God. We want to do the right thing. We want to be faithful to his word. We want to be set apart. And so they created their own Pharisee subculture. Then you had another group that took it to an even larger extreme, the Essenes. And the Essenes didn't just want to separate and form a subculture. They wanted to isolate totally away from the culture. So the the Essenes lived kind of a monastic lifestyle. They headed off into the wilderness, you know, built these sort of monasteries. Actually, if you've ever, you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls were found at this Essene community, because these folks, kind of like monks, had sort of just gone off to the desert to gather the scriptures and isolate themselves from the culture. So the Sadducees were kind of the liberals of their day. The Pharisees were sort of the theological conservatives of their day. The Essenes were just the weirdos of their day. John the Baptist might have had some Essene in him. People were like, what's wrong with that guy, you know? Which of those 
represent how Christians should live in the culture. Which of those are you most drawn to? Are you a person that is mostly going to be like a Sadducee and just accommodate, well, you know, you can't get away from the world and it's not that bad. It is my father's world after all. And so I'll just whatever. Are you more of a Pharisee? Says, you know what, I gotta, I gotta seclude myself. I gotta get my little Christian bubble, all my Christian friends, all my Christian schools, all my Christian clothes, all my Christian music. As if music could be born again anyway, that's a different conversation. And I'm just gonna protect myself from the world. Do you even take it like a, a step further and go, you know, I'm in this Pharisee camp, but where I really long to be is in the Essene camp. I need to buy me some land and get away from these people. <laughs> Well, Jesus has a totally different approach. And it's the approach we read about here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Now, here's what's fascinating. If you just think about this uh, Sermon on the Mount in its context, Matthew 5 to 7, uh, Jesus begins it talking about the Beatitudes, the blessed life. And this is what we looked at last week, that the blessed life isn't what you typically think. You think the blessed life is success and achievement and wow, aren't you special? Jesus says, no, the blessed life is humility, it's poverty of spirit, it's mourning over your sin, it's hungering and thirsting for God. It, that's the real blessed life. Now, it's interesting because if you just had the Beatitudes, you would start to think, okay, all that God cares about is this vertical relationship between me and him. I just need to be poor in spirit, I need to mourn, I need to be meek, I need to hunger and thirst for righteousness, I need to be pure in heart. All that matters is just me and God. But then when you get to verses 13 to 16, what you see is, no, 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 this blessed life can't just stay between you and God. It has to go out and impact the world around you. How should Christians live? in a culture that's increasingly godless. Jesus has the answer here in Matthew 5, 13 to 16. So what I wanna do is just kinda teach through this passage and pull out a number of things and then really try to apply this in a way that hopefully connects with where your everyday life is. All right, so verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So, how should Christians relate to the world? Jesus gives us two analogies here. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the of the world. Now we'll talk about what those specific pictures mean here in just a moment, but I, there's a couple things just in those first two words that I've got to point out. See the first two words of verse 13? Then the same first two words as verse 14? First thing you need to know is that that word you is bigger than you think. You know what? Well, in English, we, we don't have a way of really distinguishing between you singular and you plural right so we need to apply a redneck translation to this what jesus is really saying here is y'all in fact what he's actually saying is all y'all <laughs> right this is a plural right you is plural in both 13 and 14 all y'all 
are the salt of the earth. All y'all are the light of the world. So this means, first of all, that we don't just see ourselves individualistically. This is not a sermon about how you need to go out and you need to individually meet all the needs of all the people around you and you need to be this perfect representative of Jesus. No, no, no. This is how together we are the salt of the earth. Together we are the light of the word, world. All y'all. All right? So all y'all, and then it says are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Notice, it doesn't say, y'all should be the salt of the earth. Y'all ought to be better at being the light of the world. No, 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 it's not a command, it's a statement of fact. He's saying you are the salt of the earth. Are you salty? You are the light of the world. Are you bright? In other words, the Christian, Christians and the people of God will be the salt and the light. The question isn't whether we will be that. The question is, will we do a good job of it? Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, listen, y'all are plan A, and there ain't no plan B. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. If people are going to experience salt, it's going to be through y'all. If people are going to experience light, it's going to be through y'all. It's not coming another way. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, a lot of people comment about the role of salt, especially in the ancient world, and what this illustration would mean. There's a few things it would mean. One is it would mean um, the, a kind of preservative, right? Because you didn't have refrigeration, you didn't have freezers, Right, when you went off and killed an elk, like some of y'all are going to do here in the next, since, since we're talking y'all, I mean, we might as well just talk about the hunting y'all going to do in the next few months. Some of y'all going to, you got, you got tags for this year and you're going and you're going to get a, yourself a, an elk. Something like that. I don't even know what I'm talking about. And y'all going to haul it back here, right? And, and you're, you really should bring some to your pastor's house. But anyway. <laughs> But you get this big old, I remember a few years ago when Josh shot himself an elk, right? And he had this huge freezer full. Well, in these days, you didn't have a freezer. So what would you do to preserve that meat? You would salt it. You would, you would use that salt as a preservative. The salt also would be something that would add flavor, right? This is how we still use salt. Salt is a thing that, that brings out the flavors that are in food. And so if we're the salt of the earth, we're to bring out the flavors of the world. Here's what Eugene Peterson says. Eugene Peterson in his uh, The Message, he translates verse 13 actually this way. He says, let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt, the salt seasoning that brings out all the God flavors of this earth. Isn't that a cool idea? That God's planted all these flavors through his good creation, since he's the God, he's God and this is his world, that there are all these good flavors and the people of God are to be the salt that, that brings those flavors out. So there's a preserving effect, there's a flavoring effect. We're also, it says to be, verse 14, the light of the world. What does light do? Duh. You can see me because there's lights shining on me. We can see each other because there's lights in this room. Light shines in darkness. So just think about these two pictures for a moment before we dive into more of what they mean. The implication here, if Jesus is saying, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world, the implication is the world is decaying, 
The world is getting more and more dull to the flavors of God. And the world is getting more and more dark. More decay, more dullness, more darkness. What Jesus is saying is, hey, listen, the world needs you. And the world needs you to be distinct from the world and yet not, not so distinct that the world doesn't even notice you anymore, right? So, so the world is decaying. The world is dulling. The world is dark. Do we need proof of that? If you need proof of it, just look in the mirror and compare it to what you looked like a few years ago. You're decaying. You're getting older. You're losing some hair in some places. You're growing hair in other places. You're a little looser, a little saggier, a little... And some of you are like, no, I'm in great shape. Okay, just wait. <laughs> and some of you that are, you know, you're, you're older than you used to be and you're still in great shape, you know it takes you more work to stay in that kind of shape than it did the, back then. Right, so it takes more effort, more work. Why? Because our bodies are decaying. Think about your house. The stuff around your house, just left to itself, is decaying. I bought this house about seven, eight years ago that we live in, and I think at the time it was probably about seven years old. And it felt like, oh my gosh, we moved into this brand new house. And I feel like I'm just constantly telling Molly, hey, you ought to fix that. <laughs> because I don't know how to fix stuff, but it's all breaking. And it just feels like everything in our life is like, man, this is like, if there was a 15-year kind of expiration, we're, it's hit, right? Just because things left to themselves decay. Our relationships are this way. Our relationships left to themselves don't improve. They need work. You have to work at communication. You have to work at listening. You have to work at forgiving. You have to work at, at meeting expectations. You have to work at resolving conflict. You have to work at all the dynamics that come into play when you have children or when you deal with aging parents or when you deal with in-laws that are crazy or when you do all these things, it takes work because left to itself, it just decays. We look at the world around us, it's so filled with decay, it's so filled with people who are dull to the flavors of God, it's so filled with darkness and sin and pain. So Jesus says, first of all, the world needs you. You can't head off to the wilderness and you can't even just seclude yourself in your little safe Christian bubble and you definitely can't just absorb yourself into the world because then you'll be worthless. Then you'll have no unique flavor. That's his point in verse 13. Do you see what he says? You're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. A number of commentators have pointed out that the main way that salt loses its taste, because I was, I was thinking about this going, have I ever had salt go bad? I don't think I've ever had salt go bad. You know how salt loses its taste? It gets contaminated with other stuff. So when you're now contaminated by the dark and dull and decaying world, because you haven't embraced the values of the Beatitudes, it, you haven't embraced the poverty of spirit, you've embraced the world system, and now your saltiness isn't very salty. It's, it's been contaminated. You're a Sadducee that's just absorbed yourself into the culture. So Jesus says, you can't be a Sadducee that's just no different from the culture. You also can't be a Pharisee or an Essene. We've got to somehow be in this culture, 
engaged in relationships with people who think and act and value things very different from us, engaged in those relationships, and yet in some kind of distinct way, in a way that is salty, in a way that is bright. Well, what would that mean? What would it mean to to let our light shine before others? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Okay, how? How do we let our light shine? Well, the answer comes in verse 16. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Now, just think about the logic Jesus uses here. He says, let your light shine, okay? So picture light is shining. When light is shining, you see something. What do you see? Well, Jesus says, when your light shines, people will see your, what does he say? Good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So to shine light, to bring salt, is to bring good works to the world. Good, the word here, good, is a word that means beautiful. To bring beautiful, God-honoring, God-exalting, life-giving works to the world around us. Now, here's what's fascinating. Jesus is going to spend the next two chapters telling people who are kind of absorbed in their little Christian bubble, the Pharisees, who think they're doing all kinds of good works, he's going to tell them, you're wrong. In chapter 6, here's what he's going to do. He says, hey, he's going to say, hey, listen, don't be like the Pharisees who pray on street corners to be seen by everybody. Hey, don't be like the Pharisees who, who when they fast, and they fast quite a bit, they make a really gloomy face so everyone knows they're fasting. Don't be like the hypocrites, the Pharisees who make big gifts and put their names on the building so everyone knows how much they gave. Don't be like that. Now listen, is Jesus saying that praying and fasting and giving aren't good works? He's saying, it depends. They could be a good work or they could not be. Then we're going to get into chapter 7. If you have your Bible, turn to chapter 7, starting in verse 21. And here Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Oh, baby. Jesus is saying there will be people at the last day who stand before him and say, Jesus, I did all kinds of prophecy. Jesus, I cast out demons. Jesus, I did mighty works. And Jesus will say, yeah, you did. But I didn't know you. Because maybe those works were mighty, but they weren't 
beautiful. So here's what's amazing. If you look at this sermon in its whole context, is Jesus saying, hey, if you're my people and you're shaped by these upside down values of the Beatitudes, now you go, you let that light, you let those good works shine. But here's what you need to realize. The things you do will look just like the religious people who are huddling in a bubble because they're praying and they're fasting and they're doing good works and they're, they're doing mighty works at least. Jesus will say, it's not about the, the, the actions themselves necessarily. You could pray or, and pray and two people pray and God likes one and doesn't like the other. You could fast and fast and God approves of one and doesn't approve of the other. Why? Because good works that are beautiful aren't about the power and they're not about the impressiveness of the one doing them. They're about the love that they're done with. The fulfillment of the law, Jesus says, is that you love your neighbor as yourself. He says in chapter seven, verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What is at the heart of good works? How can we be salt and light? It's by doing all the things that every religious person does, but just doing it with love. Well, what's love? Right, love is this word that just has come to mean almost nothing these days, right? And isn't it frustrating if you understand biblical love? That love is just, well, I love pizza. Okay, well, well, I love football. Well, I love, oh, I love, I love, I love, love, love. Oh, and oh, I'm in love with her. I'm in love with him. What's real love? What's biblical love? What's love that's shaped by the love of Jesus? Let me give you a definition that is just a, such a helpful definition. This is, I've, I've been able to, you know, since I've taught it a few times, I've been able to memorize it and learn it. And I tell you, if you could commit this, this sentence to memory, it will change how you go through your day and how you think about the relationships with people around you and how you shine light to the world around you. Okay, so it's a quote by Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp's a biblical counselor and a pastor and an author. And here's how he defines Love. He calls this his cross-shaped definition of love. He says, love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not expect payback or that the person is deserving. Wow. So that's more than just an emotional feeling. That's more than just, whoa, I loved my vacation. This is, love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand payback or that the person is deserving. First, the willing self-sacrifice. This means that love has a sacrificial element to it. It's not just about a feeling, it's about an action. And it's about an action that takes action that in, in the moment, in the short term, hurts me. It's sacrifice. It's difficult. It might even involve pain, but it's a willing self-sacrifice. I, I sacrifice this way out of love, out of desire, out of care. I want to, I don't just have to. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. This isn't for my good. I'm doing this genuinely for you. Right? The, the Pharisee who's praying on the street corners to be seen by people is really doing it for who? Himself. 
The person who prays to God out of l- real love for God is, is doing that. It's a sacrifice of time to honor God. It's willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand payback. We're very willing to sacrifice if we know we'll get something in return. We're very willing to help people if we know they'll help us back. In fact, sometimes you've said this to your kids. Don't you know how much I love you? Don't you know how much I've given for you? And then you don't even pay me back? That's not love. That's a transaction. That might be an investment, but love isn't the willing self-investment. It's the self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand payback. This is one of the things, you know, I've talked with Wade about this. Wade shared his story earlier. And one of the things that's interesting is, especially uh, in a corporate setting, when you realize that you actually start to, to lead this way and love this way and that it really works, one of the temptations is to do it just because it works. Because this is actually good business and people will give us more money in return if we serve them. Okay, that's fine, but that's not love. Love is not doing it with the motive, with the intention, with the need to be paid back. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand payback or that the person is deserving. This definition of love comes right out of the gospel because while we were still Sinners, Christ died for us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but Christ made us alive by his grace, right? So love doesn't size someone up and go, can they pay me back? How could this be a benefit to me in the future? Does this person deserve it? You know, they haven't always treated me well. I don't know if this, I don't know if this is fair. You know, one of the things I love to do, and, and, and I do this, uh, whenever I do this, I try to do this with my kids, is what we call gospel tipping. I think I got this phrase from Jeff Vanderstel. Gospel tipping. It's the idea that you just got horrible service at a restaurant, and in the, spite of the fact that you got horrible service, you're going to give a bizarrely big tip. And you know what I love about that? is after you sign the check, you don't go back to the back of the restaurant and go, hey, see what I gave you? <laughs> well, you stunk, but I gave it to you anyway, right? No, you just do it before God. Because you go, God, this is how you treated me? I deserve nothing. I've done nothing. I've, 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 nothing, I've done nothing but serve you poorly, and you've done nothing but pour out your riches on me. That's what love is that's what that's the difference between good works and mighty works religious people can do mighty works jesus people are called to do good works and get this this is what's so awesome about the gospel we talked about this back in when we studied titus these these good works aren't the cause of our salvation they're not the root of our salvation they're the fruit of it 
right? We don't do this good work in order to be forgiven by God and loved by God, right? That would be us doing something so he'd pay us back. No, no, no. He has freely given to us. We can't pay him back. And so now we do this just simply out of love. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand payback or that the person is deserving. That's what it is to be the salt of the earth. That's what it is to let your light shine. And sometimes you'll do it, and as it says in verse 16, they'll see and give glory to your Father in heaven. They'll go, oh my gosh, who is this God that you serve? Why would you ever do that? Why would you extend that kind of kindness to me? Don't you know how I've treated you? I mean, this is amazing. And sometimes they'll do what it says in verse 10. Or verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Jesus says, listen, I'm calling you to be the light of the world. The light is decaying. The light is dull to the flavors of God. The, light is, the, the world is dark. And I'm calling you to be the light. So how are we gonna let our light shine? How are we gonna do good works of love? Now I'll tell you, this is where you've gotta do some thinking and you've gotta do some evaluating and you've gotta have some conversations, maybe on the way home in the car, maybe over lunch today, maybe in a small group sometime this week where you need to really put some thought to, okay, how is God inviting me to love? And who is God inviting me to love? And how can I love in such a way that it, is good works to be seen. Now get this, the goal's not to be seen by the world. The goal's to do the good works. So, how can we, how can we shine? How can we love? Well, we've gotta think about it being out in the world. We've gotta think about it being in all of our life. Notice, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. So we can't just be in our own little bubble. We've got to be in this world. And think about even just salt for a second, right? If someone says, think about how weird this would be. If someone said, hey, could you please pass the salt? And you pass them the salt, and they unscrew the bottom, and they pour out a pile on their plate. And they're like, ooh, yummy. And then they get their spoon, and they get a pile of salt, and they just kind of, ooh, yeah, that's salt. That's amazing. You'd go, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and yet a lot of times as Christians, we go, oh, look at our pile of salt. Oh, we're so salty. We're doing such good works. Yeah, but no one sees it because it's just with yourself. Salt, when you get a salt shaker, you put it on all your food. It spreads throughout the whole meal. Jesus says, you're to be the light in the whole world, everywhere you go, all of life. Now, we've got to be honest, we're going to struggle to do it out there if we can't do it in here. So it does start at home, and it does start in the church. So you might need to think, okay, what would it look like to do good works of love in my marriage? You might be thinking, what does my spouse need right now? And rather than, than being someone who's always keeping score, well, I did this for them, I did this for them, they kind of owe me one, it's, my, it's their turn. No, 
You'd say, I'm gonna willingly self-sacrifice for their good. I'm not gonna demand payback. I don't need them to be deserving. But what does my spouse, what do my kids, what do my parents, what do the people in my home need? Because I'm gonna start there. And then you begin to filter out. If you're a student, you start to think, what would it look like to shine the light of good works at my school? What might be leaning in to loving those who can't pay you back, loving those who are overlooked, loving those who are made fun of, loving those who are on the fringes. It might even mean, this is crazy, it might even mean loving your siblings. And doing good for them and caring for them. It might filter out and ripple out into your work, right? You might be able to be in a position like Wade where you're able to, in your job or in your role with others, to say, hey, the values around here are going to be based on the kingdom of God. And even if you don't ever use that word because that just wouldn't make sense to people, you could say, listen, I don't exist here just to serve my boss. I don't just exist here to cut a check. I exist here to bless, to serve, to love through creativity, through hard work, by being the kind of employee that's trustworthy and always does a good job. And even when I don't do a good job, I admit it and I own it. I don't blame it on someone else. I don't make excuses. I ask forgiveness. That's what it is to be the light of the world. It's to do good works, to not get caught up in all the banter and all the negativity of the world. Think about this verse. This is in Philippians chapter two. The apostle Paul writes, here's one way to be a light of the world. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Gulp. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying anybody can gripe, anybody can lash out, anybody can complain. So you go, well, but that's my main spiritual gift. (laughs) No, it's not. That's your flesh. And believe me, I'm the most sarcastic person I've ever met. And one of the indications of whether I'm walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit is how sarcastic and biting and gripey I am. If this is your father's world, And everything you have is a gift from him that is shaping you more into his image and that even if it doesn't feel good in the moment, you know he is using for your eternal good and his eternal glory. What do you have to complain about? So do all things without grumbling and disputing. That's how you shine your light. You say, I'm going to love my father by not complaining about the circumstances he's allowed in my life. And when people see that, they'll go, wow, that's different. See, here's the thing. We think that evangelism and mission and, you know, all that rah, rah, change the world stuff. We think that that's about our heads 
and about knowing the answers and having the, the responses to objections and getting all the apologetics training. And that can all be very, very helpful. But I think the thrust of what Jesus is saying here is, listen, impact in the culture doesn't come through having the answers to questions. It comes through living a life that raises questions. That's what it is to be salt and to be light. So what's our relationship with the culture? We're not going to blend in, just be like everyone else. No, that doesn't honor the Lord. We're not going to withdraw and just create our own little Christian bubble. We're not going to go nutso off into the woods. No, we're going to be in the world, but not of the world. Loving the world because we love our heavenly Father. Let's pray.